With frequent wildfires contributing to airborne pollution and the fall allergy season upon us, it's time to buttress your respiratory health with Breathe Clear from my friends at NT Factor. Breathe Clear with NT Factor combines the benefits of NT Factor's breakthrough lipids formula with powerful bioflavonoids and amino acids. Together, they've been shown to restore energy, repair the damage to cells caused by wildfire pollution, decrease allergic reactions, reduce sinus congestion, and open blood vessels. Breathe Clear with NT Factor is the best formulation available for tackling both allergies and the free radical damage caused by wildfire smoke. For a limited time, buy one container of NT Factor Limits Powder and get a bottle of Breathe Clear with NT Factor free. That's a $27 value. Just go to ntfactor.com, that's ntfactor.com, or call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158. Arm yourself with the protective power of NT Factor Lipids Powder and get Breathe Clear with NT Factor absolutely free and breathe freely while supporting your body's fight against allergies and free radicals. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to discuss a book that I found quite fascinating. It's called Healthcare Upside Down, a critical review of policy and practice by today's guest, Dr. Henry Buckwald, MD, PhD. And Dr. Buckwald is a veteran of the medical field. He's a witness to the dramatic transformations that have occurred during his 50-year medical career. He's a emeritus professor a pioneer in bariatric surgery, having authored over 360 peer-reviewed studies and holding 20 patents for novel bioengineering devices and more than 100 medical text chapters and books. And he served as president of five surgical organizations. And he's also a recognized authority on the history of medicine. With that perspective, he laments the trends that have overtaken the U.S. medical system. And, and that's a sentiment that resonates for me, although my medical career does not span as long as his. Uh, it does span quite a few years, and we've seen some really big changes. So uh, as Walter Cronkite once said, and he's quoted in Dr. Buckwald's book, America's healthcare system is neither healthy, caring, nor a system. And I, I think that pithily sizes it up. So, Dr. Buckwell, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here and pleasure to listen to your podcasts. Indeed. And I'm very happy to discuss the book. Indeed. So, okay, so after your uh, you know, illustrious medical career, <clears throat> what prompted you to write this book? Because it's, it's a very personal book, uh, and it, it uh, kind of really is sort of a capstone to your long medical career. Well, I guess it's sort of a sense of disappointment. Uh, when I entered medicine, it was looked at as a calling, as a profession. And, and today, it, it's a job for most people. It, it's run on a business model. Uh, people have lost the doctor-patient relationship. Um, Americans are deluded into thinking we're number one, we're the best. We're not. We're very inferior to so many other healthcare organizations in other countries. Um, and so I thought, well, let me write about it and, and maybe 
some people will listen, and maybe something can be done about it. And indeed, the last chapter of my book are sort of ten hints of what can be done, maybe to set health care from upside down, right side up. But it, it, we have deteriorated in the last 50, 60 years. We haven't advanced. What, we what, have, are, what are some of have, the statistics that, that suggest that we're lagging behind the rest of uh, you know, the westernized, industrialized uh, democracies in terms of uh, health care outcomes? Well, uh, that's actually the first chapter of the book, because it shouldn't be just uh, me complaining. It should be facts. Right. And uh, I, I wrote this book not particularly uh, for people who are in health care, fellow physicians, you and me, but for everybody, and and therefore I, I, I try to make it uh, palatable so that people understand what we're talking about. All right, there are certain criteria that are world criteria uh, for health care, and they are life expectancy. That's number one. Well, we are ranked 46. Uh, with a life expectancy of 79.11 years, Hong Kong has a life expectancy of 85 years. So that's average life in, uh, expectancy. The mortality rate, same thing. The potential, potential life lost in years. Infant mortality. A lot of people are concerned about infant mortality. In infant mortality, uh, we are very, very low. Think of it. I mean, we keep talking about the poor people in disadvantaged countries uh, in, in Africa and so on. But we have a low infant mortality. And let me read you here from the uh, table. I, I think you mean, I think you mean a, a high, a high, a low infant survival ship. I mean, you know, perhaps a high infant mortality. I think that's what you're saying. Uh, yeah, high infant mortality. Correct. If you look at we're, we're low in the statistics. Correct. We're low in we lag behind other countries in that statistic is what you're saying. Yeah, and in deaths for one thousand live births, Finland has two point one five, and then Norway, Sweden, Australia, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, New Zealand, UK, Canada, and then comes USA with five point two two. That's disgraceful, and there are other. Uh, rankings in various categories, and we are lower than any of the Western European countries, Australia, New Zealand, and our neighbor Canada. But we beat the whole world in one thing, in cost. Yeah. The USA health system costs, at least, it's gone up 17% of the gross national product. Uh, the closest to us is Switzerland at 12%. So we pay more and we get less. And we are running it on a business model. But what other business can succeed by selling things more expensively and giving less? You can't sell cars that way, but we sell health care that way. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a sort of a non-competitive model because uh, there's not a lot of choice. And one of the things that uh, you point out is that uh, what has grown in medicine uh, exponentially, not so much the number of medical providers, but something that you term, and I think this is a word that you've coined, the administocracy. W what, what do you mean by that? 
Well, uh, there are various articles out besides my own. There's a book by Ginsburg, and there's an uh, article out by uh, uh, McCabe, uh, a lawyer, that has shown a remarkable increase in the number of administrators in healthcare. And let's say in medical schools, there are more deans and associate deans and assistant deans and deanlets uh, than really is necessary. And there are less faculty. Um, and the, the system is based on administrative um, making money. And, and I don't, I'm a capitalist. But there's, there's something that bothers me when among the Fortune 500s, uh, among them at the very top are healthcare providers, uh, the big healthcare organizations, the pharmaceuticals, etc. Uh, they, you know, they're, they're making an insane profit. And where does it come from? Well, it comes to a small degree from the income of the real providers, the doctors, the nurses, etc., but mostly from patients. Mm -hmm. uh, patients are getting less, and everywhere there's another charge. Uh, you go into a doctor, and uh, let's say you have some sort of insurance. Let's say it's uh, Medicare. Let's say it's medical assistance. Let's say it's a private insurance. Whatever it is, uh, you have to sort of pay a, a fee just to get in the door. Uh, and uh, there's always something left over for the patient to pay because the whole thing is based on a profit motive but it's not based on really giving the best medical care which is the worst part of it uh, and the, what's satisfied is what's sacrificed is medical care in favor of running it like a business but it's it's not a good business to run that way. Indeed, and and in fact, uh, you know, to paraphrase uh, Winston Churchill, uh, he once said something to the effect of uh, capitalism is the worst economic system, except for all the others. And and you're not a fan of socialized medicine, and you note that in the book. But what you say is that uh, in spite of the fact that we say we have, uh, you know, free enterprise medicine. Uh, our medicine is about 60% socialized in this country, and it sort of constrains. Uh, it's kind of like a the worst kind of hybrid, you know, the, the worst aspects of a capitalistic system with, you know, giant-sized profits for corporations and a kind of a sinecure for drug companies and, you know, giant conglomerates. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it rations health care like, like a, you know, socialized medical system. And that's true. Uh, you know, we don't believe as a nation. Some people do, but who is a nation? We don't believe in socialized medicine. It's gotten terrible thing, socialized medicine. Uh, but we have, as I said in the book and show, demonstrated, if you count Medicare, medical assistance, the armed forces, the VA system, the NIH, uh, the other public health, uh, the Indian services, and there are other uh, agencies. These are all government paid for by taxes. So in other words, the public is taxed. The taxes go to various things, and they go to socialized medicine so that about 60% of our country 
is on some sort of a socialized medicine system. They are on some government-paid system, which the government is not of nowhere. The government are the taxes of the people. And only about 40% uh, comes from private insurance companies, and they are the ones who, uh, with little competition among themselves, uh, are raking in the money at the expense of the patients. So uh, there are bad things about socialized medicine. There are certainly bad things about non-socialized medicine. And altogether, we have to have a new emphasis on medicine is there for the patient. And for the patient, you need a doctor-patient relationship. And that's very much been destroyed. Well, how... And how I gladly... Is... Uh, I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, so... How is it that medical care has become depersonalized and, and fragmented? I mean, it used to be, you know, when I started practice, this is actually one of the reasons why uh, patients, uh, you know, have come to me over, over decades, because they really feel that they get personalized care the way that it used to be. And, you know, that's the way I structured my practice when I began it in the 1980s. Uh, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, there's not a lot of intervention. There's not a lot of handlers. Uh, they see me, I talk to them, I examine them, I touch them, I you know, listen to their personal stories, uh, and I'm available to them. Uh, how is it that medicine has changed in that regard? Well, in the old days, the doctor-patient relationship meant two things. The patient said, my doctor. And what does that mean? It means that person trusted that individual. It was a, an individual as you said, they came to, they talked to. And the doctor said, my patient, that didn't mean ownership, that meant taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, today that doesn't exist. If you <clears throat> go to uh, a healthcare organization, they will assign a doctor. And let's say, okay, you, you're happy with that person, and then you call and you say, I'd, I'd like to see Dr. So-and-so. And they say, well, he can't see you for about six months now, but we'll have Dr. So-and-so see you. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Is that the doctor you want to see is very popular and he's booked. And they have empty slots for other doctors who are not booked. Right. And, and it, it may not even be for and it may not even be a, a doctor that you see. You may see a, a paraprofessional. You may see uh, a nurse practitioner, and that's not a knock on nurse practitioners, and many are very skilled. Uh, you may see a, a PA, physician, physician assistant. Uh, they're sort of interchangeable cogs in the medical system. And, and sometimes I ask my patients, you know, I first question I ask is, who's your primary care doctor? And many of them can't answer it. They, they say, well, I don't know. I go to the clinic, and there's a different person every time. You know, I, I saw this one, I saw that one. You know, I, I don't know who they're going to give me on a given day. That what, what you described. Absolutely. And it extends into um, service lines. Uh, there used to be independent practitioners of surgery, I'm a surgeon, uh, medicine, etc. and so on. Well, now there's service lines. And, and there's an attraction to that. Let's say you have a gastrointestinal problem, let's say a cancer of the colon or something. Well, in the service line, you have an internist, an a, um, endocrinologist, you have a chemotherapist, you have a surgeon, you have a radiologist. They're all there, but there isn't that one-on-one -on -one relationship. So 
none of them take personal responsibility. And it, it breaks down that doctor-patient relationship. For instance, <clears throat> in one of these service lines, they keep the surgeon in the operating room because that's where he makes money or she makes money for the group. It's more and, billable, uh, more billable than, than otherwise, right? To right. Have them. Yeah. And, and so, uh, so that's one way the doctor-patient relationship is destroyed. Um, and, and then, you know, we talked about rotating doctors or rotating healthcare personnel. It's done on the model of what is the most efficacious thing for the bottom line. And it's not done for the welfare of the patient or the emotional consideration of the patient. And you also talk about how uh, sort of a new Orwellian language, kind of a medical newspeak has crept into the system. And you, you just alluded to it, you know, that uh, we no longer talk about patients. We talk about clients. We don't talk about uh, doctor's offices. We talk about uh, organizations. Uh, and we no longer refer to ourselves as doctors. We refer to ourselves as providers. So how, why, is right. that, why is that insidious, to, to this, this change in language? Well, I think Orwell in his landmark book, 1984, said language precedes reality. So when you make a patient into a client, uh, you no longer call him a patient, call him a client. That does a lot to dehumanize the relationship and make it into um, a business like, like purchasing a, a whatever a shirt or something. Right. You become a client. Well, and a commodity. Uh, in effect, commoditizes medicine. Yeah. You know. I think that's the best term. Yeah. Becomes a commodity, and we are, we're not doctors in that sense. Uh, we are providers, and uh, I remember when in my hospital. Uh, instead of having nursing stations, uh, they were called firms, firm A and firm B. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, 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 I think that does that a disservice language. to the to the notion of nursing, you know, uh, because you know nursing care has uh, the connotation of something that is uh, very nurturing uh, and uh, you know an integral part of the support of the healthcare system. But you know that's kind of a cold and personal term, the firm. <laughs> Yeah, and all that is incorporated into what is today, unfortunately, our health care in this country. And, you know, you ask the question, does it work? No, it doesn't work. Uh, just look at these statistics. It does not work. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think to some extent, uh, physicians themselves have been kind of remiss in, in giving up uh, their autonomy uh, to administrators and to regulators and to big corporate entities. Because, you know, when I go to my medical school reunions, you know, periodically I go for the 10th, the 20th, the 30th, the 40th, and I see kind of a progression. You know, my, my uh, fellow medical students are really in love with medicine. They love the field that they entered, and many of them have had spectacular careers. But virtually all of them... Uh, started out in some form of 
solo practice or small group practice, and they had a lot of autonomy, but there were also entrepreneurs and they were subject to all the vicissitudes of business. And then, you know, with the increasing uh, computerization of medicine and, you know, uh, insurance requirements and stuff, it became burdensome. And they said, "Uh, I just want to be relieved of that burden. And I want to have better hours too. I don't want to be on call all the time. I just want a salaried job with a hospital or an HMO. And now when I talk to them, they say, uh, you know, I have a better lifestyle, but it's not as fun as it used to be. I don't have the, I don't have the, uh, the autonomy that I once enjoyed. Is, is that true in your experience? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think, except for rural physicians, certainly rural surgeons, radiologists, etc., they all are employees. They work for a hospital. And what does that mean? <clears throat> They are told which drugs to use because drugs are purchased on a per-cost basis. On formulary. On formulary. Sure. You may say, I want this, but they say, I'm sorry, it's not on formulary. We, we have, but we do have this. We give you a, right. like a step-down choice. Right. <laughs> and, and I've uh, had, uh, I know that certain operations are refused by certain hospitals because the patients take too long in the hospital They may have some complications. It may be a good operation for some people, but uh, it's not uh, financially as good as doing another operation. Uh, so we or, or it may be bad for the hospital aid. statistics. It may be like, you know, hospitals are rated in terms of mortality rates and complications. And a, and a risky surgery may be the right surgery, but it's not going to look good on the hospital's ratings. Absolutely. And, and I've seen that. Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen these and I've heard from various hospitals. I mean, for instance, uh, I, I'm a surgeon. Yep. And let's say when you're a surgeon, sometimes you have a wound infection. So the patient goes home and they come back with a wound infection. They're not admitted to the surgeon's service because that would be bad for the statistics. Mm-hmm. They're admitted as a fever of unknown origin. Oh. So, 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 so it doesn't redound to the discredit of the surgical department. It becomes like coincidence. This person, you know, is now admitted for a whole new thing. But it actually uh, was the repercussion of the original uh, surgery. Absolutely. So now the patient is admitted to some medical service for a fever of unknown origin. Well, everybody knows he's got a wound infection. So now they call the surgeon who did the surgery and said, will you take care of this patient on my service or on our service? But it doesn't count against the statistics of the surgical service. Mm, yeah. uh, it's a, so it's that, a form of gamesmanship. It's, it's gamesmanship at the, at the hospital level. Yeah. And why do patients, uh, hospitals want you to come in for the first, second day because that's when the money is made. There's x-rays, there's tests, there's this and that. But then today, everybody's pushed out of the hospital. The patient may not feel like going home yet. They're still in a lot of pain. So they give them some painkillers and say, you can go home now. Uh, this, this early uh, discharge from the hospital sounds good, and people like to go home as soon as they can. But the main reason is if you empty the hospital of patients who are not paying that much except for the room, 
you can bring in a person who's going to get new x-rays and new tests and make more money. Yeah, so you get rid of the less productive patients, but perhaps to their detriment because they actually may need recuperative time. Uh, and so often uh, people are discharged under circumstances where they can't take care of themselves, uh, they have problems at home, uh, and that's not good. So, yeah, I mean, but these are sort of built into the profit motive and the uh, way that uh, medical services are reimbursed, sort of like the perverse incentives that are embedded within our healthcare system. I agree wholeheartedly with your statement. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, you also uh, talk about health insurance as kind of a it, 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 it's it's kind of a silly concept in a way if you compare it to other ways that we pay for services uh it's front-loaded so in effect you're paying a premium but you really don't know what you're paying for (laughs) you know it's sort of like a black hole into which you pay money (laughs) and then uh you know then you get some kind of care but it's kind of vague right yeah and well that's you know what we hit what we're touching upon is, is that you're paying for something well, let me make an analogy. Sure. You want to take your kid to a ball game, okay? So you're called the stadium, and they sell you, yes, uh, for a certain amount of money. Uh, we'll sell you tickets, but we're going to tell you uh, which team is playing, when they're playing, and where you're going to be seated. You wouldn't buy the tickets, mm-hmm. but that's what you're doing with health care. Right. Well, they also won't tell you if the if the team that uh, is playing stinks or if they're going to make the playoffs and you'll get an opportunity to go to the World Series. Yeah, absolutely. Which I can really relate uh, to because I'm a Yankee fan and I've uh, been prey to that kind of system. <laughs> so You're not doing very well this year. No, I'm not. And I, by the way, I see that you're a graduate of uh, Columbia College. Uh, we're fellow alums, but uh, I think I may have... Uh, been in a later class than you. I'm class of uh, 1974. Y- you went to Columbia undergraduate? Uh, I'm, well, I'm 54. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that dates us a little bit. I am. Oh, yes, yes. It was a wonderful time. Uh, I, I loved Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on the swimming team. I uh, I just loved it. Uh, yeah. And, so, and, you know, all my children, we have four children and a bunch of grandchildren. I tell them all, enjoy college. It's the highlight of your young life. Uh, and Columbia was fantastic. I loved it. Well, I presume that in 1954, there weren't as many people uh, dropping acid, smoking pot, uh, and riding as there were when I was during my tenure at Columbia. <laughs> so it was a different era for you sure. Know, I, I think that's right. And um uh, we we had this tradition, which I think uh, went out later, that on the last day of a class, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we could wear anything we wanted. It was at that time all male, so people, uh, weather permitting, came in shorts and uh, sweatshirts and sweatsuits and whatever. But anyway, the last day of class, you dressed in a suit, mm-hmm. and you went and said to your teacher, thank you, professor, and shook hands. Uh-huh. Well, I that guess a, that that's a out. that's a John Teal tradition that has certainly uh, departed. Uh, it was already long gone uh, after uh, I started school. All right, good it's good stuff to uh, lay the groundwork for our discussion part two. I got more to talk to you about because uh, I want to talk to you about uh, some new 
uh, aspects of medicine. You know, the advent of uh, AI and chat GPT is going to revolutionize the practice of medicine. Uh, also, uh, you know, want to talk a little bit about uh, your field, which is uh, gastrointestinal surgery, uh, so-called bariatric surgery for weight loss, uh, and how the advent of new drugs uh, may challenge the primacy of surgeons in that regard. Uh, we got a lot more to discuss as we consider a new book. I recommend it very highly. I'm writing a review of the book that will appear in our newsletter next week. Uh, it's Healthcare Upside Down, a Critical Examination of Policy and Practice by today's guest, Dr. Henry Buckwald. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.